Diversion Podcasts. A Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Serena. So grateful for the traits that I learned through playing sports and, and wanting to just absolutely show up just like you all did. But I'm also very grateful for those who really lifted me up and the, and the opportunities. But it was just a, a true belief that I was where I was supposed to be. And I was so grateful that I was able to have the opportunity to, to, um, to witness somebody like Serena. You know how, I don't know about your folks, but you know, I would hear my, my mom and dad, bless their hearts, are both deceased. I used to hear about, you know, oh, Joe Lewis and they, all these athletes and all, you know, Babe Ruth. And I'm like, huh. Well, we could say we were around with Serena Williams. We yeah. were here to witness that kind of greatness. That memory of um, the 2012 Olympics, I feel like it's the best tennis I've ever seen her play. I yeah. mean, she just was crushing it, dominating. I want to say from the quarter semis final, she beat Azarenka, Sharapova. Oh, I forgot the third, but it was just like unstoppable. Like there was nothing anybody could do. She was so, so good. She was so in the zone. Um, so that was fun to be a part of that, to, to watch that kind of brilliance. Welcome to The GOAT Season 2 Serena. I'm Chanda Rubin, former world number six, Grand Slam singles semifinalist and doubles champion, alongside my co-host, Zena Garrison, a former Wimbledon finalist, world number four, and Olympic gold medalist. In this podcast, part of Diversion's GOAT series, Zena and I and our guest celebrate the career and life of Serena Williams. We'll trace her path as she evolved from an outlier in the tennis establishment into the all-time Grand Slam singles champion and ultimately a cultural icon. Welcome to Episode 9, Best Matches, Top Rivals, in which we'll review more than 20 years from Serena's career. You may have recognized the voice of Good Morning America host Robin Roberts at the top of this episode. She made a wonderful comparison there, suggesting that watching Serena has been this generation's equivalent of having seen the great prize fighter from the pre-World War II era Joe Lewis. That resonates on so many levels. Like Serena, Lewis also attained iconic status. He seemed to touch everyone, but especially African Americans who were hungry for celebrity role models. Lewis was known as the Brown Bomber, and Serena brought similar unprecedented power to women's tennis. Both are, in every sense, heavyweights. But in our tennis context, there's an interesting difference between Lewis and Serena. Joe Lewis fought 69 official bouts, suffering just three losses. As of the end of the 2021 Grand Slam season, Serena had battled her way through 1,007 official matches. She won 855 of them, along her way to collecting 73 tour titles, including an open era record 23 Grand Slams. What a poise! <laughs> Serena Williams scrambling throughout, survives. How great is the effort from Serena Williams in this last rally? You can hear it throughout. Does whatever it takes to win this point. That should give you a rough idea of how difficult it would be to sift through all those matches to identify, say, a dozen to highlight. Besides, what standard of judgment should we apply? Should we restrict the list to untouchable performances, bitterly contested matches, historic encounters, comebacks from match point down or big wins against her most dangerous rivals? Narrowing down Serena's important rivals is a more manageable chore. Her greatest rival was her own sister, Venus. She was the only player who had career-long staying power. They battled through 30 matches, 
including nine Grand Slam finals. All her other reliable challengers managed a grand total of eight finals, 11 if you count late career threat Angelique Kerber. Two of Serena's other legitimate rivals, Martina Hingis and Jennifer Capriati, were, along with Serena, among the greatest of prodigies. Kim Kleisters also matured quickly as a pro. But while they had the skill set and right mentality, they lacked the saying power. It's eye-opening when you consider Serena's longevity that four of the half-dozen women who were potential career rivals were unable to remain relevant for a substantial period of time. Capriati and Kleisters, who played Serena tough but only won two of nine matches with her, took unusually long breaks from tennis for different reasons and never did hit the high notes on a regular basis during comebacks. Martina Hingis retired at 22, although she made a successful comeback as a doubles player, and Justine Ennen was done as a dominant player by age 25. You can see how many caveats and what-ifs this episode could explore, so we're just going to hit on matches and rivals that had special resonance in Serena's career. We're also going to do things a little differently when it comes to our special guests this time. The newest addition to our guest lineup in this episode is Benny Sims, who coached me for a decade on the tour, a period that included my one cherished win over Serena at a WTA tournament in Los Angeles. Of course, that match didn't make this list, but a few of Serena's other losses did. It would be impossible to begin this journey anywhere but at the 1999 U.S. Open, where Serena, just 17 years old, turned tennis on its ear with a 6-4, 7-6 win over Martina Hingis. This was a classic battle between prodigies. Hingis had become the youngest Grand Slam champion in the 20th century when she won the Australian Open in 1997 at 16 years, three months. At the conclusion of the match, another historic milestone had been recorded. Serena stood as the first African-American woman to win a Grand Slam singles title since Althea Gibson in 1958. The final was also a riveting struggle between the straightforward power puncher in Serena and in Hingis, a slightly built wizard who was adept at keeping bigger and stronger opponents off balance with her versatility and finesse. The match contained a dizzying array of brilliant, tricky shots and warp speed baseline rallies. Hingis, the masterful counterpuncher, hung in there, but in the end, Serena's power and determination won out. In a preview of what lay in store for the women's game, Serena blasted eight aces in the match, bringing her tournament total to 62, a whopping 40 more aces than anyone else in the event. In 2012, Serena would establish a new single tournament ace record for women, nailing 102 at Wimbledon. Hingis played Serena tough, but she was no longer a factor in singles by the middle of 2002, a casualty of the new, more powerful brand of tennis brought to the fore by Serena and Venus. Hingis was driven out, but she left winning 6 of 13 matches against the woman who would go on to be the GOAT. She was Serena's craftiest rival. Meanwhile, Venus and Serena were busy turning Richard Williams' dream of seeing his daughters dominate women's tennis into reality. With Serena's ambition to win a U.S. Open title realized, Venus made good on her own early goal by winning Wimbledon in 2000. She would then win the next U.S. Open as well as Wimbledon in 2001. So by midsummer of that year, the Williams sisters were engaged in a spirited battle at the very pinnacle of the game. The word spectacle was about to enter the tennis vocabulary. When the two women advanced to the U.S. Open final that year, 
the United States Tennis Association and its broadcast partners saw their chance to capitalize on an athletic fairy tale, the story of the Williams sisters. So CBS abandoned the Super Saturday format they had promoted so aggressively over the years. Instead of being sandwiched between two men's semifinals in the late afternoon, the women's final between Venus and Serena was moved into primetime. By the time the sisters strolled out into the harsh glare of Arthur Ashe Stadium's massive floodlights on that cool Saturday evening, you had to wonder how the actual match could possibly live up to the hype. Well, it didn't, at least in athletic terms. Venus reeled off seven games in a row from one two down as Serena struggled to dial in her range, spraying unforced errors. Venus showed that she was a superior mover. She was more consistent and precise from the baseline, and she served up a storm, winning 6-2, 6-4. So why, you may wonder, include such a lopsided loss in a celebration of the GOAT? Because that match heralded the dawn of a new era in professional tennis, one that was dominated by the Williams sisters for nearly two decades. It also presented Serena with the challenge of a lifetime and the main task Serena would have to accomplish if she were to become one of the all-time greats or even the GOAT. She would have to master her greatest potential rival who happened to be her sister. Here's what former number one Andy Roddick, who grew up training with the sisters in Florida, had to say about those early Williams sisters matches. Yeah, I, so I know this is the GOAT podcast, but those matches were kind of like, they, they were like less than that maybe. They, they were they were kind of awkward for, for a long time. And it you felt like all of a sudden it was, you know, a set and three all. And then all of a sudden they, they kind of played well at the same time for three or four games, but as, as far as quality, and maybe it's because they know each other's weaknesses so they can attack them a little bit more. I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of chess match explanation for it, but the matches always kind of felt awkward. Um, you know, even yeah. at the end, there was no celebration. It was like someone, they were like happy for half a second. And then, you know, they both had a face like they ate a bad piece of food or something. Like it was kind of like this weird, <laughs> like, it, yeah, it was like one, it was like, I'm happy, but I'm kind of like sad at the same time. So for me, I, I know we can build up the rivalry and I, I'm, I'm like better talking about their feats apart and how amazing that is yeah. and how great their relationship is. But the matches I thought were probably less than we would expect from two players of their caliber. Serena lost five of the first seven matches to Venus. Having to play each other took the Williams sisters and the sport into uncharted territory. The unnerving nature of the challenge may explain why from early 2000 to 2003, six consecutive matches between them were decided in straight sets. And only one of those sets even reached the tiebreaker. Make no mistake, in late 2001, Venus loomed as Serena's potential nemesis. But in her signature manner, Serena addressed the task head on and with full fury. She missed the next major with the sprained ankle, but then won the other three majors of 2002. She sealed a historic Serena slam when she won the 2003 Australian Open. Her opponent in all four of those finals? Venus Williams. The match that closed the deal on Serena's slam featured one of Serena's greatest performances. She defeated Venus 7-6, 3-6, 6-4, with both women finally showing the kind of all-in resolve that wasn't always evident in their earlier clashes. With the win, Serena moved ahead of Venus for good in both the major title hunt, with five titles to four, and also in their head-to-head, -head, six matches to five. Zena and I spoke about Serena and the sister dynamic with that seminal figure in the birth of women's pro tennis, Rosie Casals. I see her as a warrior. Mm -hmm. She's a warrior, and and uh, she 
she's a, a great competitor because you, you can never count her out. Uh, you never know, um, you know, who's stepping on the court, you know, mm-hmm. it could be somebody who's going to be very good or better than that may be great. And, uh, you know, uh, it's definitely very impressive. Well, it, it's it's funny because you um, you tapped on this a little bit already, but I remember, you know, I was I think it was the Nancy Reagan event that was in California, and I was playing in the event, and so Rosie came over and said, "Zena, I want to show you these two girls," mm-hmm. and so I was like, "What?" And so I'll never forget. I we walked over there, and Serena at that time was very short, you know, barely mm. just looking over the net. I think they were like seven and eight or something. And I remember that Serena was poaching and she was like, yes, you know, like giving a <laughs> fist. And I remember I looked at Rosie and Rosie's like, I told you, you needed to see them. <laughs> and Venus, you know, was the one that everyone was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, uh, Rosie, um, you said to me, you go, but Serena's the one to watch. Oh, Do you wow. remember me telling me that? Well, yeah. I mean, I must have told you that because she was the one to watch. Yeah. I mean, not that Venus's career wasn't too bad. I mean, I'll take it any time and her long legs as well. But uh, as I said, there was some hidden greatness in, in Serena. She was quiet and, and, and very focused and mm-hmm. probably taking it all in because her sister went first and then she followed and then she took over. And Venus was quite happy to let her do so. I don't think it could ever be the other way around. I love that last observation. It just says so much about both sisters. And even though Serena ultimately dominated their rivalry, Venus would persist as a threat. Call her Serena's most able rival. But Serena had plenty of other tasks on her to-do list. She had a full plate of high-quality rivals between 2000 and 2005, perhaps more legitimate ones than at any other stage in her career. To many, Justine Ennen topped that list. Here's how longtime Hall of Fame tennis coach Benny Sims, who was recruited by Arthur Ashe and was also my coach, rated Serena's rivals in those early years. On the lower tiers of the professional tour, you can see people hitting the ball almost as beautifully as as Federer, but they're ranked 350. So before I would suggest that somebody did something as well or better than Serena, it would have to be in addition to the rest of their game that culminated in them being able to beat her. So I want that to be clear. But that being said, uh, and there are a couple of, instances where you can look at people who did things at certain periods in time. For instance, uh, Venus, as you well know, you know, very early uh, through the middle of a career, her first serve certainly was as formidable as uh, Serena's, never her second, uh, but certainly by all means her first serve was. Um, Justine, certainly Justine's backhand. Justine Enna. And then, yeah, yeah. It was probably more versatile. I mean, she had the top spin, beautiful top spin, but it was a slice that got her out of trouble and it made mm-hmm. it so dominant on, on uh, clay because you could play one heck of a heck of a point and think that you've got it in trouble and then she'd slice the ball back and start the point all over again. So, you know, certainly Justine's uh, backhand and uh, probably the, from a movement standpoint, Again, Venus and certainly Steffi Graf, I think, move better than Serena uh, throughout. I also would have to give a nod to Celis's and Hingis's ball control. This episode of The Goat Serena Best Matches Top Rivals continues after this. Justine Ennen punched well above her weight class. She has a unique, mind-boggling distinction of having three consecutive wins over Serena in Grand Slam quarterfinals. 
Those were in the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open of 2007. She also bested Serena, narrowly and with a whopping side of controversy in what is still one of Serena's most impressive performances on clay. That was in the French Open semifinals of 2003, which Inan won 6-2, 4-6, 7-5. Serena was coming off the Serena Slam at the time, and she had made her clay court bones by winning the French Open for the first time the previous year. But Inan, a 5'6 dynamo with a wicked one-handed backhand, is one of the most versatile players ever to swing a racket. She was already showing the kind of clay court expertise and determination that would ultimately earn her four titles on the red clay of Roland Garros, the most since Steffi Graf, who won six, the last in 1999. The semi between Enon and Serena was a sensational seesaw battle until Serena served at 4-2 in the final set. Midway through Serena's service motion at 30-all, Enon raised her left hand to indicate she was not quite ready. The serve was a fault, but when Serena asked chair umpire Jorge Diaz if she had a first serve coming, he denied her. Diaz claimed he had not seen Enon's upraised hand. Enon would not admit to making the gesture, which was visible in television replays. As Serena justifiably pleaded her case, the crowd, already heavily pro-Enon, began to boo her. She hit a second serve and lost the point. She went on to lose the game and the match with the crowd jeering and cheering Serena's errors. Afterward, Serena said she was, quote, a little disappointed, unquote, in Enon, but stoically refused to lay the blame for her loss on the incident. Enon herself confessed to her gamesmanship, saying, I think she saw it and was disturbed by that, so it's true that it's not the best memory. Enon would pull the plug on her career prematurely at the end of the 2007 season at age 25. She was carrying a chronic elbow injury and exhausted by the mental strain. Despite a brief comeback, she was never really a force again, but will be remembered by many as Serena's toughest rival. The unpleasant incident that marred that match would come to be seen by many as part of a pattern in which Serena was repeatedly treated unfairly or held to a higher or more rigorous standard than her peers, including the men players. It was not long before another incident added credence to the theme. Serena and Jennifer Capriati were in the midst of a fascinating rivalry when they met in a night session quarterfinal on Arthur Ashe Stadium in the 2004 U.S. Open. It was a compelling battle that ultimately had historic significance. The two women were leaving it all out there in a superb battle that had the famously rowdy sellout crowd on Ash in a frenzy. But in the third set, the excitement increasingly turned to disbelief and anger. Serena, on what was essentially her home court, found herself on the wrong end of four questionable line calls. The most glaring mistake was an overrule by chair umpire Mariana Alves early in the final set. She intervened to call an important Williams backhand return out when instant replay showed that the ball had clearly landed well inside the lines. Serena's going to come right over to talk to the chair. I, that was way in. John, way in. I always defer to you on these things. This is crazy. Well, that's not even close. I mean, that's not even close. Hawkeye, the electronic line calling system, had not yet been adopted by the tournaments, but it was used by television. It showed viewers that all four calls against Serena were wrong. Unsurprisingly, Serena ultimately lost the epic match, 2-6, 6-4, 6-4. 
In her post-match comments, she kept her cool and even smiled as she said, I'm extremely angry, bitter, upset. I feel cheated. Should I go on? I just feel robbed. Sadly, that would be the last of the 17 meetings that took place over barely five years between these wildly gifted former prodigies. Serena prevailed in the series 10-7, but 11 of those meetings went the three-set distance. Nobody, including Venus, consistently played Serena closer. But Capriati shunned the tennis crowd and avoided the media, so her role in Serena's career, apart from that major controversy, tends to get overlooked. If Venus was Serena's ultimate rival, Capriati is her forgotten one. The impeccable performance, Serena's 6-1-6-2 blowout of Maria Sharapova in the Australian Open final of 2007 featured the fewest games Serena ever allowed in a major final. But the tournament also stands as the most remarkable effort of any in her career, perhaps with the exception of the 2015 French Open. Serena was emerging from a rough period. She was still depressed over the death of her sister Yatundi. She was struggling with a knee injury and fitness issues. Her ranking at one point in 2006 was down to number 139. She entered the first major of the new year at number 85, not having won a tournament of any kind since 2005. But as she wrote in her 2009 memoir on the line, the visit to Africa was a transformative experience. She wrote, quote, really, my entire mindset changed as a result of that trip and I hate to discuss something so deeply moving in terms of tennis, but the truth is my approach to the game was changed as well, end quote. As the tournament in Melbourne got underway, Australian TV analyst and former Wimbledon champion Pat Cash branded Serena's vow to return to the top of the game deluded. Clearly, Serena still wasn't in great shape, so others piled on, adding some body shaming. To top it off, Serena had a wicked cold as the tournament got underway, and her lack of fitness left her with painful blisters on one foot. In the third round, she came within two points of losing, and Shahar Peir pushed her into overtime before Serena won their quarterfinal, 8-6 in the third. In the final, though, Serena produced her devastating best. That was something she was often able to do when meeting the steely, aggressive Russian Maria Sharapova. Their matches constitute the most bizarre rivalry in tennis, maybe in tennis history. Sharapova prevented Williams from completing a three-peat at Wimbledon in 2004. At 17, she was the same age that Serena was when she won her first major. Relying on her explosive serve and powerful forehand, Sharapova blasted Serena off the court in that final, 6-1, 6-4. Serena would never forgive or forget. Well, I thought her sister was pretty good when yeah. she showed up. <laughs> and, and, and genuinely, I really do believe that I go back to the U.S. Open when they all of a sudden, the women's final was on Saturday night, you know? Mm. I think they thought that Venus and Serena were going to be duking it out for 10 years. And it was only a couple of years. Uh, and obviously, they both have won, you know, they, they clashed a lot at Wimbledon. And mm. Venus won five of them, you know, not always against Serena. But, I mean, they had their great rivalry. But then Serena kind of, she like, she took it to another level, right? Uh, so that I think was going to be the great rivalry of the time, and then mm -hmm. and it wasn't and it was a good rivalry. But uh, the Sharapova one, the worst, the worst thing Maria Sharapova could have done is to win the Wimbledon championship at age seventeen against that woman who was trying to win her third straight. That was her, Maria's biggest mistake. <laughs> Did she so, know at the time? <laughs> yeah, at the time, she had no pressure on her. She was playing great. I mean, it was she, for a. She showed great poise and she was going for her shots. And I mean, Serena, I don't think, I don't think, I th 
anybody would assume that, all right, this kid's not ready to win, you know? Yeah, you're here, you know? You got, you know, you got, you got game, but you're not ready to, are you ready to win this? Are you ready to beat me on this court? Are you sure? Sure? So that was her biggest mistake. Cause I don't think Serena still has gotten over it. <laughs> and then, and then oh, she, sure. and then she beat her at the world, the champion, the year end championships. That was a really, I could, that was a fast court. And, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that rivalry was big because Maria Sharapova was big. She mm-hmm. was big. She was big. She was beautiful. She had contracts. She had poise. There was a, an arrogance to her, you know, uh, there was, so, I mean, that was a legit, it was, she was a legit number one, you know, Maria won, you know, she, I mean, even yeah. late, late in her career, she won a couple of French Opens where you didn't see that one come, you know. The so-called rivalry with Sharapova is one of the most intriguing chapters in Serena's career. Sharapova basically worked around Serena and carved out a terrific career. She completed a career Grand Slam, something only accomplished by 10 women, including Serena, in tennis history. She was ranked number one on five separate occasions during the Serena era for a total of 21 weeks. Sharapova won two of her first three meetings with Serena. But then Serena punished her with a remarkable streak of 19 wins. Nobody, but nobody, has ever lorded it to that extent over someone who, on paper at least, was a legitimate rival. So when it comes to a quick-take description of Sharapova, call her the non-rival rival. Sharapova also played a prominent role in Serena's greatest feat as an Olympian at the London Games of 2012. Her performance there was a statement, a ferocious rebound in the middle of a difficult year. Serena was beaten in the fourth round of the Australian Open of 2012 by number 56 ranked Ekaterina Makarova. Then at the French Open, she suffered her first opening round loss in 46 majors. She was beaten by French wildcard entry Virginie Rosano. The tennis event in the Olympics that year would be held on the grass at Wimbledon just a few weeks after the end of the championships. The doubters and haters were beginning to come out of the woodwork again. But after taking that painful French Open loss, Serena called a little-known French coach in what turned into a career-altering move. That coach, Patrick Maradoglu, is here with us to walk us through how that happened in the aftermath of the loss to Rosano. Yeah, I think it was a it was a turning point. I mean, obviously it was, but I think she was at a certain point of her career where she was wondering what to do because she was getting 30 years old. Yeah. yeah. Because mentally she's tough and during this mm-hmm. match she was not very tough mentally. Mm-hmm. And and she was very unbalanced in whatever she was doing. That's the first wor- word that will come to my mind. She unbalanced was, physically on court. Yeah, what you saw. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's funny because she. So the first thing she did is ask me to come practice at my academy. She didn't ask me to coach her at all. She said, mm-hmm. "I need I need to practice, and I'm in Paris still, and I need to win Wimbledon." <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> can I come practice? And I said, yeah, sure. So when she did, wow. when she did, she, so she, she started to practice and I was, I was just next to the court. I was just checking if everything was right. She had two hitting partners and she started to hit for 45 minutes in a row. Then she stopped, she sat down and I was, I was behind the fence looking. And then she turned to me and she said, talk to me. So <laughs> I talked to her, but really that way, but you know her, so you know how she can be sometimes. Uh, and she loves to do that. Uh, and I, that's the first thing I said to her. I said, look, I saw your match. I saw your, I just saw your practice. And you do the same mistakes. Like, I don't see any balance. Like, whenever you hit the mm-hmm. ball, you're, you're not balanced. And you're never moving forward. Mm. So that's the first two things that struck me. 
And and I, I want to follow up. You said she said she wanted to win one more. What did you say to that? Just one? <laughs> uh, well, first, she didn't say that straight away. Uh-huh. She said that later. She said that when we, so I, we, we worked. So after, after I said this, let's uh, do those remarks. She said, okay, can we work on that? I said, sure. So I went on the court and we started to work like this. Uh, like really, literally in a second. I said, mm. of course. I went to the court and we started to, do, I, I started to do the practice. And then she said, I love it. Can we do another day? And we, we ended up doing 10 days, I think, in a row. More of the GOAT Serena Best Matches Top Rivals continues after this. Apparently, those 10 days were enough to rekindle Serena's enthusiasm and rehabilitate her game. At Wimbledon shortly thereafter, with Patrick looking on, Serena survived a few close calls to win the event. Serena painted her Olympic masterpiece, an astonishing 6061 demolition of Sharapova. With that win, Serena completed her career Golden Slam. The Olympics 2012, where she played uh, some of the best tennis I think of her career, uh, she crushed everybody. Hmm. Like, unbelievable. The way. And it was very interesting because we went from Roland Garros, so this was the start of our collaboration. So Roland Garros, she lost first round. So the, then we, we play, she played Wimbledon and she won it, but playing really bad tennis, especially the first round, she was mentally really struggling because, because of all the losses she'd had in the past. I mean, the past years, mm-hmm. two years. Uh, but she won it. And the confidence she gained out of, out of this win in Wimbledon, like paid off in the Olympics where she played... She was untouchable, and the best match was in the final against uh, Sharapova. I think the score was 6-1, 6-love. Serena still had one match to add to the highlight reel in that pivotal year of 2012. Her U.S. Open final win over number one ranked, top-seeded Victoria Azarenka. The challenger was a confident, almost arrogant opponent who feared no one and played a deadly counterpunching game. Their clash in Ash that year bears comparison with any match in Serena's career, and it was a major final. The ball striking throughout that battle was furious and uninhibited. Serena was down 3-5 in the final set, but she managed to hold. Azarenka blinked in the next game, serving for the match she allowed a break that leveled it at five all. She was doomed and she knew it. Serena won the next two games to sweep the win in two hours and 18 minutes, 6-2-2-6-7-5. This was a classic high-risk, high-reward performance by Serena. She hit 44 winners compared to just 13 by her dogged defensive opponent. Serena also made 45 unforced errors. The win was just one of many electric performances by Serena in one of the most glorious chapters in her career. Here's how Patrick Maradoglu characterized that period and her main rival in it. During the period, I would say, uh, 2012, 2015, uh, which were the, the end of 2015, which was the best years of Serena, I think, because she won in this period of time nine Grand Slams, which is a lot, and stayed three and a half years number one. I think the one that was the toughest for her was uh, Azarenka. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Serena beat her most, most of the time in the majors, the matches were all, always super, super close. Um, Vika beat her several times in uh, in Masters or other tournaments or lost crazy matches. I remember one unbelievable in Madrid where uh, Vika was 5-4 in the th- third serving for the match, double mm. faulted three times, mm. like crazy dramas and ended up losing 7-6 in the third. But all the matches were tough and, and Vika was able every time to bring her best tennis and... Uh, and mm-hmm. Serena had to play really great to win, and she didn't win all the times, but 
is what is true is in the majors. I think she did. And I think yeah. a lot of times think, that was yeah. for, for me watching those matches, they both brought a sense of intensity to the game. And, and, and you could feel it when they were out there, like two competitors, like going after it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think the level of play was uh, they were both pushing each other and the level of play was really great every time. Azarenka proved to be Serena's great late career rival, and she doesn't get enough credit for it. Consider this. Only Venus and Sharapova played Serena as often. Azarenka and Serena met 23 times, with Serena leading 18-5. That tells you that Azarenka was successful and consistent enough to get opposite Serena in the late stages of tournaments. By contrast, neither Angelique Kerber nor Gorbina Muguruza, both of whom actually beat Serena in Grand Slam finals, played Serena 10 times. Three years later, Serena faced a very different set of challenges at the 2015 French Open she found herself vying to win her third consecutive major title. Clay was the surface on which she enjoyed her least amount of success, but she enjoyed that challenge. Also, she would have to win this event to keep alive any hope of winning four successive majors to complete a second Serena Slam. Serena's tournament was laden with obstacles, she came down with a nasty case of the flu, a can't-hardly-get-out-of-bed case of the flu, that almost forced her to withdraw. At times on court, she felt disoriented and nauseous, which helps explain why she had to fight through three sets in five of her seven matches. All that on the clay surface that demands the highest degree of most consistent concentration. In the semifinals, Tamea Baczynski led a sluggish Serena by a set and a break, only to see Serena mount a fierce comeback, ultimately winning 6-0 in the third set. Serena's final round opponent was 28-year-old Grand Slam final debutante Lucy Safarova. One of the many quality players from the Czech Republic, Safarova was a tricky lefty with a dangerous serve return, and high-jumping topspin forehand. Given the toll illness was taking on Serena, it seemed that Safarova might emerge as the champion of Paris when she leveled the final at a set apiece. But once again, Serena rallied and found enough reserves to win 6-3, 6-7, Our friend and broadcaster Mary Carrillo was on hand that day and did the on-court interview for U.S. television immediately after the final. She had an interesting anecdote about that experience. When Serena won that French Open and she was feeling so crummy, remember that? She beat, I think, mm. Safarova in the final. Like, I had yeah. gone down to the court thinking I was interviewing the other person. And Serena, after the match, so she wins and she's really in, she's got a fever, she feels crappy. She she barely got past Tamea Baczynski. Do you remember this French yes, Open? Yes, yes, I remember those matches. That She did that strictly mm -hmm. on will, strictly mm. on fight. And it was just, I, and what I remember, I interviewed her after the match and she said, I saw you in the corner. <laughs> like, I was like, the, she saw that vision of doom. Like, I thought I was interviewing the other girl. I saw you, and they're like, really? Did I inspire you to win this championship? Oh that wasn't God. really what she was saying. But I, that moment really sticks out for me. Amazing. That, so, that is crazy. So, Mary, it, it's like the moment where, you know, it, it looked like the Spurs were going to win, and then they brought the, the trophy out. That's exactly and then, right. And then, and then That's who I was. I was the spur. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I, I was the spur that inspired her. <laughs> Correct. I'm taking partial credit for that win. Hold the confetti. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Yeah. With the title secured, Serena's confidence soared. 
she went on to Wimbledon, where she dropped just one set to persistent Victoria Azarenka over the two-week tournament. She locked down her second Serena Slam with the straight sets win over Garbina Muguruza. It was the capstone to yet another display of sustained brilliance by Serena. You know that old expression, what goes around comes around? Well, it came around in 2017, it being the tale of the tennis-playing Williams sisters. Serena, 35 years old, had triumphed over all of her rivals. She had outlasted most of them in a career of outstanding longevity. She had tied Steffi Graf's record for the most open-era singles titles, men or women, with 22, just two back of an all-time count that covered a period of over a century. There was just one woman left standing, and that was Serena's greatest rival and best friend, her 36-year-old sister, Venus Williams. 19 years, almost to the day after they squared off for the first time in a professional match, they faced each other in the same tournament. But this time, it wasn't a second-round match. It was the final of the 2017 Australian Open. My, my, how time does fly. The final wasn't either sister's best performance, nor her worst. It wasn't their closest match, nor the greatest blowout. It was almost like a ceremonial occasion, but it was competitive. After it was over, Sister Isha Price told the New York Times that it was palpable how much Venus wanted it. Once again, though, Serena asserted her superiority in a tried and true way. Coming into the tournament, Venus was outstanding in what many think is the key metric in the stats, winning points on second serve. In her previous matches, Venus had won more than 50% of those points. But in the final, Serena's aggression and powerful returns limited her to 29%. Later, we learned that Serena was roughly eight to nine weeks pregnant when she won Grand Slam number 23 and took possession of the open era record. Serena would not win another major to date, despite making four finals. Her future as a player at the moment is uncertain, but one thing that isn't in doubt is the extraordinary relationship and rivalry she has had with Venus. Serena said in the trophy presentation ceremony in 2017, I really would like to take this moment to congratulate Venus. Um, she's an amazing person. There's no way I would be at 23 without her. There's no way I would be at one without her. There's no way I would have anything without her. She's my inspiration. She's the only reason I'm standing here today and the only reason that the Williams sisters exist. So thank you, Venus, for inspiring me. So let's hit the rewind button and go way back to 1991 to check out what famed coach Rick Macy thought when he rolled up to the courts in the Williams family van and first set foot on a court with Richard and his daughters. Yeah, it was like one of those old hippie bands and it was wobbling and it's it's in the movie that's coming up and it's it looked just like that. You know, we went to the park and, you know, it was so funny because when we went to the park, um, there was a bunch of people playing basketball. People were passed out in grass. And I said, wait a minute, this ain't East, East Compton Hills Country Club, you know, that we're at. And the kids get out. And it was really funny because, like, the people on the basketball court kind of parted because yeah. we had to go to the tennis court. And you know what they called Richard? King Richard. Yep. Now, this was in 1991. And they called Serena Jamaica. That's her yep. middle name. Mm -hmm. And they called Venus VW. It was really just very, very different. And the first hour, we're on the court. And I said, they're not any better, any worse than any kids that I've seen until we started doing competitive stuff. And, then and the whole thing just blew up. It changed. The running got different. 
the footwork different, mm -hmm. the desire different, strokes got a little better. They were still arms, legs, and hair flying every which direction. But when they started competing and I saw the way they moved and tried, I knew the other stuff could be taught. And I went up well, to Richard. I said, let me tell you something. You got the next Michael Jordan on your hand. And he put his arm around me and goes, no, brother, man, I got the next two. Well, that about does it for this episode. A look back at some of Serena's greatest matches and her most difficult rivals. One thing that becomes clear in this review is that those great moments in a player's career aren't merely the one-off occasions when everything worked perfectly. They weren't demonstrations of skills approaching perfection as much as the end results of a long process, either at the specific tournament in question or in terms of Serena's career arc. We pay tribute to the handful of players who had the game and the mental strength to stand up to Serena at her best. There's a bit of a myth out there about Serena not having any rivals, but this episode showed that it's not accurate. The matches between Serena and half a dozen players over the course of nearly two decades were must-see stuff. If there's a caveat to attach to that, it's that three of those rivals, Hingis, Capriati, Ennin, just didn't have the staying power to continue to challenge Serena. But hats off to Venus and Azarenka. In the next episode, Slamorama, we'll take a closer look at how Serena negotiated the Grand Slam events over the years. But let me leave you with the memory triggered by our conversation with my former coach, Benny Sims. It was about the intensity and confidence required to compete with Serena. You know that, Z. You were pretty damn tough yourself that regard, but it's true. It's no accident Chad had two of the longest and still two of the longest matches in women's history, right? <laughs> against Sanchez Vicario at Australian and against uh, Patricia Heath. Boulay now. That is right. Then so, so so right. And I just remember though one of the other things before that match against Serena that you told me, you said you have to match her intensity. And mm. you know, you, and and I had a certain level of intensity, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't out there like, you know, Serena's. And I remember during that tie break, I just thought of that thought again. And I, when she grunted, I started grunting. <laughs> when what? she ran a ball and she would go, ah, and then I hit, I go, ah like louder and for some well, reason that's how it translated to me to kind of match her down the stretch but i've never done that before or since <laughs> well i wish you would incorporate it a little bit more you probably would have been number one <laughs> <laughs> different conversation yes This season is hosted by Zena Garrison and Chanda Rubin. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Kalb. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Original music by Andy Marvel. Our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA and Susan Canavan. Diversion Podcasts.